0: The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com Bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Good evening. It took a little bit. Cliff and I are both in between the situation that Abraham and Lot were in. And we were both playing Abraham. What I mean by that is I didn't feel well earlier I had taken some medicine for what seemed to be a migraine coming on. Didn't know if it works. So I asked Cliff to cover. He ran up here, run off outlines, got all ready to go. Then I felt fine, and I'm ready to go. And then we stood right here and argued over who was going to go. So it looks like we're both going in different places. But Cliff is definitely prepared. He's got some great outlines up here. I don't know if we'll hand those out at the end or save them for later. He gave me the cheat sheet so I could do either way I wanted. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 4. Uh, we are finally down to Mark chapter 4. Um, if you want to be literal with that and not and, and technical about it, we're not quite there. We're in Mark chapter 3, actually, verses 31 to 35. Uh, but that is a context that we have reflected back and forth on. It. We've been moving very slowly and incrementally through the preceding context, which was Mark chapter 3, verses 21 through 30. And that all had to do with what we were calling at that time, at least, and pardonable. I like to call it the ungetoverable sin, the sin that is under death, the sin that is against the Spirit. According to verse 29, Mark's account, which can result in danger of, quote, eternal damnation. That's the King James translation of that. Other translations uh, put there eternal sin, which equates the same thing. If one commits a sin and they're unwilling to repent of it, the context that becomes an eternal sin, therefore results in eternal damnation. So there's not a problem with any of those translations in that and the way they come out. But in this context, verses 31 to 35, basically picks up. Jesus settles back in. That's kind of behind him. He said this, uh, as I call it, the accusation that was made by those Pharisees. His interrogations came out and he developed those verses 23 through 27. And then 28 and 29, there was the illustration that he brought out. And of course, he proved his point. And that is that if you're willing to deny me, and therefore also deny the work of the Spirit and all the authority and power that comes from it, then you are committing a sin that is unto death. And that's basically an unrepented of sin. And that's kind of the only application we can make today. Not as definite, not as set in stone as this may have been, But nonetheless, the results can be the same. And then verse 31 to 35, those same people, I believe, that's just my uh, disclaimer in that. Verse 31, it says, and then, I'm in chapter 3 of Mark, and came then his brethren and mother standing without and sent unto him calling. I think that goes back across the page. If you draw errors in your text, that goes back across the page to verse 21 of that same chapter when it said, when his friends, his friends are included in that group, and his mother apparently has joined in that group. At least it says she is there, verse 31. And remember, the friends came to him basically saying Jesus may be out of his mind. He, he's doing these things, and the accusation that he is a Beelzebub or Beelzebul, we use that uh, distinction back then. But they, they come to him and they want to talk to him. They want to see him. They still, even though he set forth those arguments against that interrogation or accusation, they still want to talk with him. And so once they get there, he then in turn looks at them or knows where that they are outside. He looks at those that are around him in the room and he says, These are my family. This is it. And the ultimate illustration is simple there that we ought to put a priority over our spiritual families up against our physical families. And that's sometimes the difficulty we have. We would hope that they would mesh and be one and the same, but sometimes, unfortunately, they are not. We've got family members who are blood-kin to us that are not Christians, and they may not have the same spiritual value that we do. And so sometimes we have to make those choices nonetheless. But when you get down to chapter 4 and verse 1, we're there finally. When you get down to chapter uh, 4 and verse 1, it says this, and he, that is Jesus, began to teach by the seaside, and there was gathering him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat by the sea, and the whole multitude was by him on the sea. Now, a couple of things we can be reminded of. If you go back to chapter one, remember that Jesus had put an emphasis on the willing, on his desire, at least, to teach. Yes, he committed many miracles. There are probably thousands that are unnamed here in the context of chapter 1 through chapter 4. But nonetheless, his emphasis was always to teach. And so what you might jot out beside chapter 4 and verse 1 is he gets back to business. He gets to doing what he intended to do all the while. The miracles that he put forth, those signs, those wonders, those mighty deeds, miracles, were all simple validation to the victory that he was offering through the Word. And that's kind of the way I have viewed that and kind of the way I understand that. He was only validating what he was teaching, which was ultimate victory. In addition to that, in verse 1, we find out that he went into that ship which he had asked of his disciples to prepare in the previous chapter. Remember when he was overrun with the throngs of people, chapter 2 and chapter 3 bleeding together, he had told his disciples, go get a ship ready. Bring a boat up beside the seashore, and then if there be a need for me to escape, I can do that. That's what he has done. But even though he has to take what might be that apparent escape, uh, removing himself from that multitude, he still uh, fulfills his desire to teach. And then in verse 2, we learn this, chapter 4, and he taught them many things by parables and set them in his doctrine. Of course, a few things we're going to look at in that, but the idea again is he's continuing and he's setting himself up to teach them And he chooses to do that from Mark chapter 4 and forward, many different occasions he chooses to do that via parables. And there are a number of parables that are listed. We've all done it. We've studied as Bible students as well. A lot of times one of the things we'll follow is we track through the gospel accounts. And this could apply itself to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Is you might view the miracles on the one hand, that makes for a great study. Just follow those miracles, see the authority that he expressed, see the validation again that he produced in that. But you can also follow along and track along many times the parables and, of course, the way that he chose to taught them. Now, what are we familiar with? How do we usually define or describe a parable uh, to put it in its most basis terms? What do we do with that? The word parable. Earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that's typically the definition. If we've learned that, we've learned that from a very, very young age. I like to define that for myself at least a little bit clearer. narrow the focus down a bit just so we don't stumble over ourselves and say it is an earthly truth that is put beside a heavenly truth. They have meaning, yes, but it's not just simply a story. Now, of course, nothing wrong with defining it that way. We've probably done that all our lives and continue to. Uh, but just keeping in mind that these are truths on either side. Jesus is not telling an earthly story just to tell a spiritual story or make that sort of illustration. The distinction is there, both facts are always true. Jesus uses real-life illustration. Just my opinion, I couldn't prove it, wouldn't try to, but I think in many cases when Jesus teaches in parables, he uses things that are right readily, I think in view sometimes, of the people that are there. I happen to think this is one of those when he gets out there on the sea. Of course, we're not picturing him in the middle of the Sea of Galilee or whatever that. He's not three, four or five miles from the shore. It Wouldn't make any sense to teach like that. He's probably up close and more than likely within his view, the way that he could span around. We might call it that panoramic. He can probably see many of the things he talks about, whether in this case be the idea, the first context at least of being able to view soils that are being prepared seed that is being cast out whether or not that's happening in the moment or at least it's something that had happened obviously something they were all familiar with the next context that's going to pick up for us in verse 21 it's rather short but verses 21 to 23 of uh, chapter 4 as well he talks about that lamp i have no no uh way of proving it but i would assume that they would all be obviously familiar with a lamp perhaps by the close of his teaching maybe even in time i don't know could not, that's my disclaimer but maybe there's a lamp in the distance at least way he illustrates it not here in this context but in the other illustrations when he talks about a lamp how does he do that he said a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid and of course from the seaside the shore side most cases that's at the bottom of most areas. That's down there in the pit. That's down in the valley. He would see those things. And on and on you could go with most of the parables. He'll get to the mustard seed. He'll get to many different parables throughout Mark's account and others. I think that's at least, if not in physical vision, probably in view of their minds. And so they're realizing those things. But nonetheless, he teaches those things by the way of parables that we just meaning to cast beside. So he puts one thing on the one hand, something they may already know, something they may be familiar with or maybe even see. He puts it beside that spiritual truth. Now, in Mark's account, we're not to it, obviously. We had not read very far. But in Mark's account, as well as many others that are parallel with this, which, by the way, I try to give you those parallels. Mark chapter 1, 1 to 1-20 parallels extremely closely along beside Matthew 13, 1-23 as well as Luke chapter 8, shorter version of that, 4 through 15. So Matthew 23, 1 to 23. Also Mark or Luke chapter 8, uh, verses 4 through 15. That's your parallels. And particularly when you get a Matthew's account, Matthew commits to going through a series of parables. And what do we often refer to those as? Those are the blank parables. Might need a cheat sheet for this. starts with a K kingdom parables. And the way we know that Mark is doing that is obviously there's a direct parallel between those accounts. But also if you go across the page, look at what Jesus said in verse 11. I'm looking at Mark's account, Mark 4, verse 11. He says this, And he, that is Jesus said unto them, Unto you it is given to know what? The mystery of the kingdom of God. And so that's where he's getting to. And the vast majority of the recorded parables in some sense, at least there are a number of them, not all, but a huge vast majority of such are pointing toward the kingdom of God. And so that's just one of those keys that you can oftentimes look for as you do examine the parables. Look and see how the parables relate, many will, but how they relate to the kingdom of God. Now, what forms, and you could give various answers, at least two, What forms of the kingdom, quote-unquote, of God do we know? I'm going to do some motions that may help. we got one here on earth, which will be a reference to the church, and then we ultimately have a kingdom where? In heaven. Now the question is, does God rule over one or the other or both? Both of those. He rules over all of those things. And Jesus is being given authority over those and ultimately would be in heaven with God now ruling over those things, but Jesus has been given authority over both. And so whether or not it's a reference, to illustration-wise, to the church itself, which those generally bear themselves out, or a broader reference, ultimately, to heaven itself and the kingdom of God in that sense, the truths line themselves up very well. And so in this parable that he gives, it's about how the kingdom is built, I'm not sure that's the only way to see it. As a matter of fact, I know it is not, but that's kind of the, one of the ways I've seen it in the last few weeks as I begin to jump ahead and read ahead and study ahead to look at this, is this is a parable about how the kingdom itself is built. Now, we know that Jesus died for that kingdom, right? We know that Christ built that church and that kingdom, but how do its members, its participants and such, we would call ourselves Christians, how do we get to that kingdom? How to become a part of it? Well, you say, ultimately, for, through the blood of Christ. Yes, exactly. That's how we're added to it. But how do we get to that? Through our reception, keyword of the Word of God. And so you may have a heading in your Bibles. I happen to have one. I choose one that doesn't have headings. But you may have some headings in your Bibles. It may refer to this section, chapter 4, 1 to 20. It may call it the parable of the sower. I've heard it preached and taught and and discussed from that perspective. It may refer to it as the parable of the seed. And we know what is unlocked here and also in the parallel from Luke even more clearly. The seed is the Word of God. And then I refer to this more, at least the way we're going to look at it this evening and probably another week, as the parable of the soils. Okay, So that's three variations, that's three perspectives. They all come down to the same thing. That is the creation or the building, establishing up of the kingdom of God. So we have that. So it says, verse 2 again to read it, And he taught them many things by parables and said unto them in his doctrine, or his teaching. Verse 3, King James speaks, says, Hearken. Behold, there went out a sower to sow. Now there are several words, and I've loved it, as I've studied through the book of Mark thus far, uh, that there are many words that Mark uses that from what I've understood are fairly or relatively exclusive to his inspiration. And I have to say to his inspiration because God chooses, Mark just pens, but there are a number of words that are fairly peculiar, fairly different. And when you see the old King James translation here hearken, how do we translate that in our minds? What does that mean? Listen up. up. Uh, New King James, does it say behold? Anybody have that? think I think that's right others do say listen the word that is chosen here for Mark to record is a Greek word that kind of bears itself out a little bit differently from some of the others there are available other available words here but the word here for hearken, as I look at it and then the next word says hearken. behold that's really more of a compound word that can come out we see it this too but it's more of a compound word. The center part of that word, or the root of it, and I don't pronounce these correctly. Again, I speak Mumford Greek, not Grecian Greek. But it's something like akouo. You say, what in the world is A akouo? akouo means to listen. That's, that's what it means. That's the clearest. That's the most precise understanding of it. It means to listen. But what happens to a word, I'm going to swap this into English understanding, what happens to a word In this case, a verb telling us to do something or talking about us doing something. What happens to a word when you tie another word beside it? One of my kids, Cameron asked me last week or two, Daddy, where did you learn English? I didn't learn one stitch of it at Mumford. I learned what I do know from Memphis and, and we just had a decent teacher, right? When you put a word... Beside a verb, for example, that is called an ad. Okay, what does that do? It kind of clarifies, it kind of enhances what's there. If you got a noun and the opposite happens, what is that? Adjective. I don't know why it's not an ad noun, but it's an adjective. Same thing. What happens here? We see the two English words, King James translation at least. For hearken... And behold, we could say, listen and behold. What Jesus really does through tying those two together and emphasizing it the way he does, he says, you listen really, really closely. But it's more than that. Akuo, meaning to hearken, to listen, but then behold beside it, running those two together, emphasize a careful listening. But I want to show you another verse, and there are plenty to back this up. Go with me if you don't mind for just a moment. We don't flip or flop much, but go to Matthew chapter 8. Now, this is not a parallel account. Not a parallel account, but it's a parallel use of words. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. Let me see if I can get there. Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. It's at the top left on page 12. Listen to this verse. But the men marveled, that is, they were amazed, they were impressed, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, as Bible students, what's the context there? We recognize that verse. Jesus has just calmed the seas. He's just brought comfort to those men. He's just... If I assume right in Matthew's account, he's just calmed the sea. He's just basically used those words, peace be still, basically. He's talking to his disciples about lacking faith. Context preceding verse, verse 26. But in verse 27, when you see this phrase, but they marvel, the manner of them is this, even the winds and the sea obey him. Guess what obey is? You won't guess, Hooper, okuo. Hyper, we might try to translate that. Listen. But the word hooper, or at least the prefix hooper there, means to under. Listen under. So tie that all back together in a context. Same root word, okuo, as we're looking at over in Mark chapter 4, verse, where are we at? Verse 4, verse 3. Putting all that together, he says, you listen under carefully. You pay close attention and, what was the word over there? Obey. Now what this does is this brings a tremendous emphasis to the words and the phrases that we are reading. Jesus does not want them to miss this. If his kingdom is going to be built, and it is in the process, even at this point, he's giving instruction to his disciples, he's teaching the gospel himself, he's trying himself to call people unto him, he's done that through already, his 12 apostles and all the others that have followed along beside them. And he pauses right here, when he gets a tremendous opportunity to teach now he is taught no doubt he's already taught a number of times in mark's account but if you look back through those in most cases when jesus taught we only have brief snippets of what happened we only have i would call them many sermons if there's such a thing but when he gets here beginning in mark chapter 4 in some senses the gears shift But in another sense, he gets back to where he wants to be. And he says to these people, you listen carefully under me and obey. That's a lot locked up in what looks like two English words, but that's the sense of what is being said here. So listen carefully under me and obey. And there went out a sower to sow. Now, the idea of there went out a sower to sow That sounds to us as if something that's happened in the past that he remembers, but we also understand what about that? Has that stopped? If we look at the physical side of things, the physical truth here, do sowers still sow? Farmers still farm, if you will. Seed is still being planted. From the spiritual side, is that a necessity as well? Absolutely. And the shortages or the disparities in the kingdom today oftentimes come in the fact if we're honest about it that the seed is not often sown enough now the reception of that seed is what he gets to what he develops what he brings out but the principal front loads in this and says the sower just sowed the seed he just kept on sowing uh cameron this has been well over a year or so ago he was ask or task to speak at something and uh, he happened to choose his context and he brought out something I wrote in my Bible then I still remember uh, well I can remember because I can see it You know, ink is stronger than the weakest mind we hear it we ought to be seed sowers and not soil testers that's a pretty good principle here in the context the sower just sows the seed and so Jesus lays out that illustrative commandment here that the seed is just being sown now in our day and time, with all of our supposed advancements, looking at the physical side of things, how careful are our sowers with sowing seed typically? I can't speak from personal experience. We've had a couple failed gardens and I was behind the failures. But they generally are very cautious about that. One thing is seed is expensive. Is that true? I mean, it's not expensive on one grand scheme, but if you're trying to plant 500 acres, that's a different level of things. And so you've got someone who cautiously, who supposedly in our minds, now we're gonna unlock this in a moment, but supposedly in our minds, they're sowing very cautiously, very carefully. They're looking around and they're saying, okay, this part of the field is, is, uh, has been used up, or maybe they know that. We have crop circulation is another word for that. What's the real word? Rotation, that's the word I'm trying to think of. We have different methods that we've learned and advanced above, but they may say, okay, this is, this is a piece of property or a piece of land that's already been used up. This may be a piece of property that's just not been prepared and such, but in Jesus' day, the illustration is basically in the way they often did things, at least I understand it as, they just cast a seed everywhere. They just put it out there. And when we think about things, we may think about going in and clearing land off and preparing and plowing and turning of soils and then carefully dropping those seeds in perfect rows, or whether it's by machinery or by hand, and then we'll do more work to weed and such. In their day, it was more the, along the lines of spreading the seed and then tilling up the land. Now, how is theirs different? A lot of their, what we might call plows, were well, more or less just made furrows. I can't say that word. Somebody say that loud word. Furrows? pharaohs, Furrows. furrows. They furled. You got to say it. Basically, it just did this. Rose, Rose, yeah. That rose is our real word. That's the problem. Trying to speak above myself. But it's not not that generally just turn and turn. Because you wouldn't do that if you're doing that necessarily by hand. So they often would, supposedly, just cast out the seed and then come back and turn that. But what would happen is, and we know this through the illustrations that come out, some of that soil would end up being better than others, more fruitful than others. Some of the problems would be things that are already in the soil, like the stones, things that would come from the soil, like the thorns, things that would be created by those who cross the soil, like those places that are pressed down or worn down. And in this, he develops and sees some of that. Main principle, though, the sower went forth to sow. We've heard that a million uh, times. But the idea is there it's a present, active, indicative, which is Spanish for, well, it's not Spanish, it's Greek for, you keep going. You don't give up. And he teaches that. And it came to pass, verse 4, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls in the air came and devoured it up. So one type of soil that we have here is what we might often call the wayside soil. Now, for, for understanding and time's sake, instead of just reading through, we'll, we'll go back and forth as we can and then close it together. If you look there in verse 4, what we just read, that little snippet, the wayside soil, that connects across the page to verse 15. When His disciples come back and have question about what did this parable mean? Can you help us? Can you explain this to us? Verse 15 said, And there and these are by the wayside where the world is sown, but when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that is sown in their hearts. So that's what Jesus said it meant. So what does it mean? What Jesus said it meant. Now, in in 99.9% of cases, and we have to be cautious with this, Jesus gives us, thankfully, He gave them, and He in turn gives us this expounding of this parable, this single parable here, so that we can use that as a pattern to understand others. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, that's the discussion from verses 11 through 13. How do we understand this? Well, Let me show you how to understand it. How important is it? Well, Jesus says, verse 13, for example, and He said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? So what he's going to do is unlock the door. And we can use this parable to understand others going forward. But we have to be careful. Because a parable and the way that he uses this here, we have to be cautious not to make that allegorical. What does allegorical mean? First time I've ever used that word in my life. Be proud. In an allegory, a lot of times, everything in it means absolutely something. That can be dangerous. It can be extremely dangerous in, in the word where you go through, and some do, but you go through, and every single word you come to, well, that means this, and this means that, and this represents this and that. We have to be careful of that. But in this case, Jesus gave us a, quite a bit of information as to what is represented here. So the wayside soil, he says, is the soil that the seed lands on. But Satan immediately taketh it away. And he says it's the seed that's sown in their hearts. What does that do for us? It tells the the, the disciples, look, I know what you just heard. But what you just heard is a parable and it had a spiritual illustration. Why? Well, we see that he told them that would be the case, but he also tells them here that Satan took it away from them, their heart. So this is not dirt. This is a person. This is a person with a soul. This person with a heart. Now, what I put out beside that for my memory's sake, and I, I get a kick out of what Tyler just did. I love to alliterate. Tyler caught up on some of that too. This is the wayside soil. I put out beside that no reception. They did not properly receive this word because it was thrown in, but Satan came in and pulled it straight out. He got it away before it got to him. We understand that. Verse 5. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up. But it had no depth of the earth. That's what he says. Illustration there, verse 5. Explanation across the page, verse 16. And these are likewise those which are sown on stony ground, who when they heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. So it sounds like there's some progress being made right there. So this secondary soil, there was in one case no reception. In this case right here, moving across the page, this secondary ground or this stony ground, he said that this was initially, I should say, received with gladness. But then he explains, and have no root in themselves. So endure before a time, but afterward with affliction or persecution arises, the word's sake, immediately they are offended, offended. Several words we'll bring out in there later, but we've got no reception, and then we've got no root. Now, no reception, and perhaps you've seen someone like this, as, as he illustrated in verse 15 and 16 as they go together. You've seen someone who hears the word of God for Maybe the first time, or at least the first time they paid attention to it, and they, and they get excited about it, and they may, with their minds or their mouths, they may say, "Okay, that that right there, that's truth. That's I've, I've never known that." Maybe they might say, or, I, "I I get that," and they want to be obedient to such. But before they can get to it, Satan steals it away. Just my disclaimer no reception most often happens on Sunday mornings I'm trying to put it in our time frame at 9:27. where do you get that sermon gets started the opening verse illustration whatever it is sounds good the pages turn people go there they start looking at those words they start nodding their heads Some amens, which are often more silent than than they probably ought to be. But then all of a sudden, somebody says, Oh, man, I'm hungry. What was that? Is that a baby crying? You know, and I'm not saying we can't get distracted, but Satan just steps in. He said, I get it one way or another. But there's no root in the second type. The stony ground, he says, there's no root. And the problem with that is when there's not enough root, He said once persecution, affliction arises, it's immediately they're offended. The word therefore offended, by the way in verse 17, is the word to ensnare. And it means to stumble into a snare. So you stumble into a trap. There's no root and it won't stand. Next one down the page. Verse 6. But when the sun was up, it scorched, and because it had no root, that's why I I should have read this with five, but uh, there's no root in it wither the way. Verse 7, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. So we got no reception, we got no root, now we have no room. What do weeds and thorns, he'll illustrate this more in the next parable that he gets to, or second from this one. What do weeds and thorns often do to your garden? Take it, over. Take it over. Take away the nutrients. You know, pull everything that you wanted out. And it's always been, uh, you know, it's always upsetting. We've seen it if we tried, though. When you do plant that seed and you've done all this work and you've dumped in all this extra soil and all these nutrients, the first thing to grow up sometimes is the weeds. They're there. I've told people before, and we know this, um, if you ever want to grow grass in your yard, have somebody bring you in a load of gravel. Never seen that. We got more gravel, more grass in our driveway than we do in our yard. Things can hold back. Real plants, legitimate things. Now, what is his explanation, though? He says that some of those fell among those thorns. Verse 7 Go across the page to verse 18. And these are they which are sown among thorns. As they hear the word, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust and other things entertaining, or entering in choke the word and becometh unfruitful. So the illustration he gives, there's no room because the cares of the world overcome them, because the deceitfulness of riches overcome them. Which, by the way, the word deceitfulness here is a word that means to be delusional. It's so easy to get involved in what we might call the hustle and bustle of this life to the point where our focus on God wanes away really quickly have to make that next dollar, have to take that next vacation, have to have that next whatever it is and just get sucked in and sucked away by this. And he illustrates that as if it were a thorn. What do thorns do to our skin? How many of you love to pick black, is it blackberries or blueberries that's worse? they probably both, so you like that. I don't think we ever ate a whole lot, but I remember the once or twice when the good brother from church said, come on, mama, I got blackberries, and mama, bring us all. Hated that. I mean, we've shucked Oldsmobile Delta 88 trunks full of corn and liked out a whole lot more than a few blackberries to fill up a cup, but it causes pain. It causes distraction. You ever get a splinter? What catches your attention for the next three days until you get that out? It hurts, it, it, it hurts and, and it's hard to think about much else. Probably a little bit. Of a more practical illustration here. And then verse 8. And some fell on good ground. And it yielded fruit and uh, sprang up and increased. And brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. That goes across the page to verse 20. These are they which are sown on good ground. Such as hear the word and receive it. And bringeth forth some thirty, some sixty, and some one hundred. What determines, we don't have time to really finish that, but what determines, what is the major difference between the first three previous types of soil and the latter? Their, somebody said something. Heart. That's the difference. And from their heart comes their production or the lack thereof. So it's the idea of being unprofitable not bringing forth fruit and the good soil is that which ultimately because of the heart and the reception of such it's able to bring forth that fruit that's not all we'll say about that but that gives a good basis for the four types of soils that are available again those were no root no room no refusal and then of course there's the latter one there or the last one there was no refusal i didn't tell you that but no reception no root and no room and then that one no refusal Any questions, comments?